Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. season is in the air. It's episode 213 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. I say that because this weekend will be once again at Tidewater Comic Con in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Go to TidewaterComicCon.com if you want some more information. If you're already going to the show, hope to see you there. If not, make sure you go to shows in future years because it's really it's our hometown con and it's been growing and growing every year. Big year this year. Matt Ryan's going to be there. Greg Sipes, of course, we've had them on the show before. A ton of other great guests. See for yourself at TidewaterComicCon.com. Still got plenty to get to this week, though, before we hit the con, so let's talk about some new comics. So what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Cassia Tellis from The 100, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out the long box, fire up the laptop or the tablet, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. The biggest book this week has to be Justice League. No Justice, number one from DC Comics. Of course, Scott Snyder, Joshua Williamson, and James Ten in the fourth all writing this one. Francis Manipal on the art, Hi-Fi on colors and, and and world design is going to be doing the letters here. Now, this is the fallout from Dark Knight's Metal. Of course, you remember what happened at the end there. Just in case you didn't read issue six, I'm not really going to spoil it because I, I think, you know, I reviewed it on the show before. Go back a few episodes and you'll hear my review. So if you want a little bit more information, I would go ahead and listen to that. And that'll catch you up a little bit. But I don't really think you need much catching up because this is a just a, another big event series from DC and picks up right where they left off on metal. Now, I kind of think of this as, as I was reading, I'm thinking it's like Crisis on Infinite Earths, but with a villain problem that's exponentially worse. And if you're a fan of that arc, Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know how much that says. I mean, this is a next level problem. I mean, even if you thought, now Dark Knight's Metal was pretty brutal and it almost looked like that one wasn't going to turn out well. This one kind of has that same vibe and uh, the scale is definitely kicked up a few notches, but it's because of those things that this is actually happens. Now, it's no secret that we're going to be seeing some strange combinations in this issue as far as team dynamics are concerned. What's interesting is, though, is, and again, you know I'm not spoiling this, it's who brings them together to fight this evil that I think is super, super interesting. And it very much has to do with Superman. And there's a very interesting interaction between Superman and this character and then bringing the Justice League into the fold as well. Now, another thing, not just the combinations that are odd and some other surprises that happen as far as the combinations as well is that there's some animosity in, in these guys. And I mean, there's some finger pointing and, you know, why things are the way that they are. Who's to blame for that? Who kind of started it? Who didn't finish it? Who made the rights and wrong decisions? And I think that that actually made was is part of what made this issue so fun was the infighting a little bit. I mean, you see that from the Green Lantern Corps from time to time, especially when you have Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner and Hal Jordan and John Stewart. And, you know, those those different personalities sort of clash at times. You don't see that as much from the Justice League in the comics anyway. So I thought that that was a very interesting dynamic to put them in. And even characters that aren't Justice League members. You have other teams that are brought into the fold as well. And there's just a little bit of finger pointing going on back and forth. Or some that thought that maybe they could have done a better job. And I'll give you two guesses who that was. You probably can figure that out. Now, speaking of things you might be able to figure out, someone puts a huge wrench into the whole plan that's going on here and how to stop this villainous force. You can probably guess who it is by me telling you that this person usually shows up at the wrong time to do the absolute wrong thing and bad stuff happens as a result. And it's just another frustrating moment and a long line of them for this character. I mean, you remember watching Avengers Infinity War and again, spoiler alert here, how you felt when Star-Lord did what he did you're going to have the exact same feeling when you see what this character does in Justice League No Justice number one. Now, I will say that the end of this issue 
definitely has an instant and lasting impact in more ways than one on how this is going to go forward. This is not really a huge spoiler, okay? But it is a tiny one, and I won't tell you who it involves. But there is a major death in this issue, one that I definitely did not see coming, which is always good when you don't see the deaths coming. Certainly not this early in the run, anyway. You kind of think it's a possibility, but this early in the run, you understand why it's done, and it just has a huge impact. But that's a Scott Snyder trademark for me, is that he finds a ways to make deaths matter in comics. You know, not the deaths in comics ever really stick very, for very long, but at the same time, even knowing that, he makes them matter so much. And then you bring in Joshua Williamson and James the Fourth, just three guys that know how to write just these big, major emotional stories. And that's what you get here, but you're also getting a ton of fun involved as well and a whole bunch of characters that you love. And the reintroduction of a couple of characters that should really matter in the greater scheme of this story, which is something that, again, Scott Snyder did so well in Dark Knight's Metal. He brought in characters like Hawkman, and it just made him matter to a huge degree. And you go, wow, you know, I never really thought Hawkman could matter that much. Plastic Man as well, he goes as far as saying that. And, and that's another thing that I think that No Justice is going to do very well. And the art is absolutely fantastic by Francis Manipal. Not that I really expected anything different. Uh, once again, you pick just the right artist to do a major arc like this, and I can't wait to see what's next. This is a poll for me, another continuation of another great story from DC Comics, and only time will tell how this is going to affect the line going forward because, you know, the rumors have been that this is going to have a huge effect on the entire DC Comics line and just have to see how it shakes out. Going to do a number two issue this week because I didn't get to the number one issue when it first came out, so let's do analog number two from Image Comics, of course, by Jerry Dugan, J David O'Sullivan on the art, the great Jordi Belair on the colors, and Joe Sabino on the letters. Now, imagine a world where all of your secrets from being on the internet were kind of exposed and out there for everyone to see. So basically, privacy is out the window, unless you want to cut the cord or just accept the fact that everybody's going to know your business. So that's one of the things that Analog does right off the bat. And I am going to have a little bit of spoiler talk from the first issue if you haven't read it yet. But I mean, that creates the interesting conversation right off the bat, right? Is that maybe you feel like you've got nothing to hide and you don't care what people know about what you're doing on the internet. Maybe you're doing some stuff you're not exactly proud of, so you wouldn't want anybody to know. So you have some people that have cut the cord in the situation and some that just kind of accept the fate. And information in this time period, in this book, is king and securing it is of the utmost importance. And that's where the main character, Jack, comes in. He's kind of like an information jockey, as his uh, or a paper jockey, as his uh, dad likes to call him in the first issue. And he's kind of in charge of keeping people's information safe and making sure transfers get done really well. Imagine him as like a, a, a literal firewall for your information and how he kind of keeps it safe. And you definitely see that in the first issue as well, as there's basically a shootout in the first issue right at the very beginning that Jack survives. And Jack definitely reminds me a bit of Nick Sachs, kind of crossed with John McClane a little bit, but far less of a douchebag. I mean, he definitely has this sense of, you know, I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. You know, I'm exhausted all the time. I'm tired of being shot at and almost killed over stuff that doesn't really matter to me sort of thing. And it's almost like he's got... He's gotten burnt out. And we see on the first issue how this kind of gets set into motion. Everything that happened with Oppenheimer and how much he hated him and why Jack did what he did and turning the world the way it is now, or at least being a huge part of that. So I think that, that was a really cool flashback in the first issue that sets the tone for the second issue because we definitely get to see more of Una, who we saw for a split second in the first issue. We get to see a little bit of their relationship and their dynamic which you can't really peg it, and I actually like that. And you expect that from a character like Jack, the way that Dugan has kind of laid out how this character is. You don't expect him. You don't expect to know exactly how he feels about someone. I mean, is is this his significant other? You kind of get that impression, but just something still feels off there. And we also get to pick up where we left off in the first issue with Jack's dad, and Jack's dad 
is absolutely hilarious. He's the comic relief in this where it's, he, you're not really supposed to be comic relief, but that's kind of what it turns into, especially there's a huge battle in the beginning of the second issue as well, and it's just Jack and his dad fighting off, I will not tell you who, but just some of the stuff that goes on between him and his dad and some of the stuff that, that his dad says, I absolutely loved it. So I didn't expect to get a lot of comic relief in this story, given the subject matter. Definitely got plenty of that in the second issue. And there's a huge twist in this, actually, that really ups the ante big time and will certainly kind of change the landscape of how this story is going to go. Usually you see that kind of thing at the end of a first issue, but I like how Dugan and company kind of set this up for the second issue because there was certainly enough in the first issue to kind of make you want to keep going. But then the second issue, that's where the hook gets in, right? That's where you start reeling the fish in because this this story takes a huge turn and a big twist. And now I can't help but feel like, though, that there's more to it than the way it looks on the surface. You kind of feel like you know who's pulling the strings now, right? And you know who Jack's going to have to answer to and how things are going to change now and certain things that could go right or wrong, right? But... It just feels like it's too simple, and, and and just the way this issue is, these issues have been set up in the first two, I don't feel like I know everything that it seems like it is on the surface, is the best way I could think to put it. So then out of confused you even further, I'll go on to say that I love the art by David O'Sullivan as well here. It's gritty. It's very different from the Justice League No Justice book that I mentioned before, which is very clean, very cool. There's actually a panel. I can't remember if it's in the first issue or the second issue. I'm pretty sure it's in the second issue where it's pouring rain and you see Jack walking in it. And I, I just never have, you don't really get, rain is almost kind of an afterthought, even if it's raining in a book, but for some reason it just captured the mood and the imagery so well of this pouring rain and Jack walking around in it. And it just, it, it my eye couldn't turn away from that panel for the longest time because it just felt so significant to me, even though in the grand scheme of things, it might not really be that significant at all. But I thought that it spoke to the moment, and that's the way O'Sullivan's art has really lent itself to the story here. So bravo on that. This is another poll for me, by the way, analog number two from Image Comics. Make sure you're going and grabbing the first issue if you haven't already, because I think that this story is about to get really, really interesting. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, it's time to say never die and get my probably not too late spoiler-filled review of Cobra Kai from YouTube Red. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. My name is Bo Smith. I'm the creator of Winona Earth, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The under-18 All-Valley Karate Championship has turned 50 years old, so why not talk about some Cobra Kai from YouTube Red, which was 10 episodes, half hour long. Maybe you signed up for the free 30-day trial of YouTube Red to watch it. I don't blame you there because you definitely got your money's worth because it was free, right? And and that's the one thing that you knew, and that's one of the reasons you probably give this show a chance, and you are glad that you did. Going to be spoiler-filled from here on out on Cobra Kai, so if you haven't gotten a chance to watch or finish the series yet, you might want to fast-forward a little bit in the show. I, I got to tell you, and I'm not going to go through every little bit of this series, especially if you've already watched it, but I will say this. I was not expecting this show to be this good, and I wanted it to be so, so bad because I've been a huge Karate Kid fan from the beginning. I always wanted a sequel, but never really knew how they could make it work. I was leery of it, you know, just because, you know, you wait so long to do a sequel, but you absolutely had to wait as long as they did to do this sequel because of where Johnny is at on his, in his life, and he's basically... Like a down-in-his-luck home repair guy. He can't get anything going. He's an alcoholic. He's kind of left his family. He never really took care of his kid, which becomes a huge part of the story going forward. And then you've got Daniel, who is the exact opposite of the spectrum. He's a very successful owner of a bunch of auto dealerships. He has the nuclear family, minus the dog. You know, his daughter... Seems like she's a really smart kid, and she runs in a popular crowd. His wife works with him there in a huge house. So, And what I like that this show did is then in key moments where they're trying to describe what's going on with their characters, we see clips 
from the Karate Kid movies. I thought that that was brilliant. It's like just at the right time. It's not a flashback. It actually just gets thrown in there. It's maybe 30 seconds of part of the original movie, and then it's done, and then you cut to the character and how they're feeling at that particular time. And there's actually a lot of talk about Allie. Johnny gets down about Allie and how that whole thing went down a lot. So, you know, we'll see a flashback of a scene involving her and maybe her and Daniel together and how that affected Johnny. And what I loved about this series, too, was that it's the push and pull of how these how you feel about these characters going forward because at first you still hate Johnny at the beginning of the series right because you know he's kind of crass he's kind of a douchebag you can tell he's a loner you don't really feel sorry for him right and then you just they, you see Daniel's like oh it's so glad that things worked out for Daniel but then there's times where yeah you do start to feel sorry for Johnny and maybe Johnny starts to redeem himself a little bit and starts to become a better person and then you look at Daniel and you think Hey, maybe he's not the greatest dad in the world, or maybe he is kind of a rich douchebag now. And one thing that I love, too, is that you also get stuff that fans have been discussing for years. Like, it was an illegal kick that Daniel used to beat Johnny. Or, hey, how can you blame Johnny because Daniel was trying to steal his girl and the stuff that happened, you know, the the prank that he pulled on him at the Halloween party sort of thing, right? So how can you blame Johnny for reacting the way that he did. That stuff is discussed here. It's not dismissed. It's absolutely discussed. And it's like you see Johnny and Daniel being the two opposing sides of fans in kind of discussing it too, right? So I love that. There was a little bit of fan service in this, but not enough to make it go, okay, so you're just pandering to people that love the original movie. No, no, no. They've made the fan service matter. And this show does hit a lot of the same beats that the original Karate Kid did hit as well because you've got the training that Daniel does with Robbie, who is Johnny's son that I mentioned before. You get to see some similar beats of when Daniel was training with Mr. Miyagi. And then when you see Miguel, who's Johnny's student, going out with Daniel's daughter, Sam, and they go to golf and stuff, and then they kind of recreate uh, Daniel and Allie's first date at golf and stuff as well. So, and then we we get to fast forward to the end. We get to see Mr. Miyagi's house, and it, there's a part where Daniel lets Johnny choose a car. So it was kind of like when when Mr. Miyagi let Daniel choose a car as well. So I love that there were beats of the original, something that fans of the original were going to love. But at the same time, it does not strike the same exact chords. Just similarities there and then you get the two kids that are involved here as well Johnny student Miguel who is very much a wants to do the right thing a little bit of a nerd sort of thing so he joins Cobra Kai to toughen up and not get picked on by Kyler I'll talk about Kyler here in just a couple minutes don't worry we will get to that but and then you've got Robbie who is kind of the kid that was neglected by his dad who was Johnny so he's kind of a screw up he's dropped out of school he's doing a bunch of stuff that he shouldn't he's stealing stuff and then what do you see as the show goes forward you see you see Robbie meet Daniel you see Miguel meet Johnny and they both connect in their own ways of training and then you slowly start to see Robbie slip out of it right and becoming a better kid and then you slowly see Miguel slipping into the quote-unquote Cobra Kai ways and sort of, you know, becoming an angry, mean kid, right? So, and again, this is all a matter of perspective. That's the beauty part of Cobra Kai is everything that happens in this show is all a matter of perspective, and they don't shy away from that. So you go from rooting for Miguel throughout so much of the show, and then in the last few episodes where you see Miguel kind of start to become jealous and he doesn't want the same thing that happened to Johnny with Allie, happened to him with Sam, and he kind of gets it in his head that something's going on between her and Robbie, and I'm not saying that Robbie wouldn't have been down for that. And then you see that's how Miguel changes into the Cobra Kai way, and that very much translates into the tournament. But then you see Robbie, who was the screw-up stealing stuff, and then gets involved with Daniel in training because Daniel couldn't find anybody to train with him, so Robbie decides to pick up that mantle after he just decided to get a job at LaRusso Auto to screw with his dad, which very much worked, by the way. 
So, and then you see Robbie slowly start to become the better kid. And again, wants to do the right thing and just wants a better life because he's not going to get one with his dad, he doesn't think. Certainly not going to get one with his mom. So he decides to try to kind of try to find his own way. And you see him almost do the wrong thing and back out of it at the last second with his buddies before. So I love that again, that just when you think you know what's going to happen, the script gets flipped a little bit. And things start to change. Now, you get beats of it, and eventually you figure out, oh, okay, this is probably how this is going to go. So you do get that, but at the same time, it's it's just very surprising because you get attached to characters and then find out that not all is as it seems, and it's not an immediate flip. It's a gradual flip. So you you either love or hate almost every character in this show at one point or another. And Johnny's a perfect example because... It's funny how Miguel makes Johnny a better person throughout the series. And then once it goes down and Miguel turns full Cobra Kai, you sort of see Johnny get this look on his face like, oh my God, what have I done? And I love that about this show. And then you kind of see Miguel look at his sensei, somebody that he's looked up to when Johnny tries to kind of pull him back a little bit and say, hey, you got to fight fair. And he throws Johnny's words right back in his face. And I think that that's absolutely amazing how that was done. And then you see, and I'm, I'm going to spoil this again, very spoiler filled. You see John Kreese himself, leader of the Cobra Kai from the original movie show up at the end. And Johnny is absolutely stunned. He's still in this moment of, am I doing the right thing? What did I do to this kid, Miguel? And then the guy that he wishes he wasn't going to turn into shows up. And I can only imagine where that's going to go for season two. But I don't want to go there yet. I want to go back a little bit and talk about a couple of characters that drove me friggin' nuts throughout this show. First one was Kyler, who was Sam's original boyfriend. And you want to talk about ultimate bully douchebag high school kid. This guy was it. And certainly the two friends that Sam ran around with as well, who were just mean and bullies. And this show does address bullying so well as well. And something that I think that was one of the greatest things about the original Karate Kid movie was that it shined a light on bullying. And and, and in a time where that wasn't really a popular thing to shine a light on. But, I mean, Kyler drove me nuts. And if anybody got what he deserved... He certainly did. And and Miguel certainly, you know, that was his moment of stepping up. It was almost like when when Marty McFly's dad, George McFly, punches Biff for the first time, right? And that changes his life forever. Taking out Kyler and his buddies definitely changes Miguel, either for the better or for the worse, however you want to look at it, after that goes down. So when, the thing I do love after that is that you could have certainly made Kyler a central figure and everything that's going on, right? But it's almost like he's dismissed after this goes down. And I like that because he wasn't really an important part of the story, right? You see him pop up every now and then about how he's really, now he's afraid of Miguel, right? Doesn't want to mess with him because Miguel embarrassed him in front of a crowd that used to admire him, right? So he gets pushed off into the background. And I think that that's a brilliant move because you get to see the bully put in his place and you see what happens as a result of that. And you also see that happen at the party as well, when one of the girls gets put in her place. And again, not that there was much time left in the series at that point, but fades into the background. The other character that drove me absolutely nuts in this show was Louie, Daniel's cousin, who's kind of the screw up, you know, would try to do some stuff on his own, but never quite got it right. They hired him because he was family. That becomes a point of contention a little bit later on the show as well. And one of the things that Louie does actually kind of led me to one of my favorite moments in this series was when him and his stupid biker buddies trash Johnny's car, right? So when Johnny goes to confront Daniel, it eventually leads, leads to Daniel again letting Johnny kind of pick a car off the lot to sort of make up for his car getting trashed. So Johnny wants to take it for a test drive, and that's when he and Daniel kind of get in the car together. They bond over REO Speedwagon. They end up having drinks, and they're getting along. For the first time ever, and it actually looks like for a split second, they, they could actually become friends. And it was an amazing moment in the series. And it, it, it just, for as a Karate Kid fan, it's almost like a 
this is the thing you never think you're going to see, right? And then it automatically just kind of gets flipped on its ear when Johnny sees that Daniel's training his son, and that's when it absolutely 100% all goes south. So it's kind of bit that, that that moment was ruined because I think it would have been really interesting to see what it would have been like if they started getting along, but that would have that might have ruined the climax of the entire series, which was the All-Valley Tournament, which I thought they did a great job with. I like the fact that, again, spoilers here, that they had Cobra Kai winning and Miguel, even though Miguel makes that turn because it sets up that big moment at the end where Kreese comes back, and now you don't know what's going to be happening for season two. But I kind of have an idea that now, I mean, Johnny was using the Cobra Kai name because they thought that he was dead, right? So now maybe Kreese comes back and says, this is my name. I'm taking back over. You work for me now. And who knows? Terry Silver could get involved here. We still have him. And then Mike Barnes, who was mentioned, kind of an Easter egg in this. Maybe we haven't seen the last of the bad boy of karate from Karate Kid 3. He could certainly rear his ugly head in a second season. And then you have a very much uneasy Family dynamics still in the LaRusso household. Are things going to progress between Sam and Robbie? And how's that going to affect the relationship between Daniel and Johnny? Because a lot of this strained the relationship of the LaRusso family. There was even a point where his wife says, you know, ever since that dojo opened up, you've been off. You've been a different person. But then that leads Daniel back into karate. And, you know, it kind of makes him a happier and better person. And then we see he's going to open up the Miyagi-Do Karate Dojo, once again, at Mr. Miyagi's house, by the way. And could we see Sam be the next pupil that gets added into the mix? And who else can get added into this mix? Maybe there's some defectors from Cobra Kai that go over. The reason I'm talking about a second season here is, is that I am gushing over this show. There was plenty of comedy involved, which I loved that it came at just the right moments, didn't feel forced. It very much lent itself to the original movie and made so many scenes in that movie matter and really painted a picture of how things can go and how one moment in your life can absolutely change the course of how things are for your future and giving you both of those perspectives as well. I don't think I could have loved this series anymore. It was almost as close to perfectly done as you could possibly get. So I am going to give this... 10 out of 10 blue mats with gold logos because, damn it, that makes all the difference. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Cobra Kai on YouTube Red Up Next. Got some nerd news to dive into and a whole bunch of video game stuff as well. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Victoria Atkin, the voice of Evie Fry, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Sometimes it's just a good news, bad news situation, but either way, it's time for nerd news. I'm going to start things off with Nintendo announcing their Nintendo Online subscription service. Now, this is going to be subscription-based for the Switch, and it's going to offer cloud-based save states, 20 NES titles that can be played at the start, they promise, that there are going to be more. And then, of course, Kotaku comes out and gets the story that there will not be a virtual console for the Switch. And that upsets some people, and, and rightfully so, because, you know, maybe you use the virtual console for the Wii, Wii U, or other platforms, you know, to, to buy certain other games, and now you won't be able to transfer those onto the Switch. So I get that. I understand why that could upset you. Now, the virtual console games paid for on other systems not being transferable shouldn't be a huge surprise. There is always risk involved in something like this. Like, the same thing goes for cloud-based movie services, right? Whether it was Ultraviolet, now you have movies anywhere. You have to at least know that there's a chance that if you decide to toss out your discs, which I have friends that have done, you know, they say, oh, well, I've backed it all up on the cloud now. I don't need the discs anymore, so I got rid of them or I sold them. I mean, the legality of that aside, I mean, some people have done that. But, and you have to know at some point that the studios could just go, well, we're not going to do this anymore. Or, by the way, these might be yours, but this is our service, so we're going to start charging you for it. There's an inherent risk in buying anything that is cloud-based, I think. I'm guilty of it. I've certainly done it a few times, and I certainly see the advantages of doing that. But you have to know when you get into this 
that there's an inherent risk involved. But, I mean, let's look at the positives here. I mean, your save games were not safe on the Switch before at all. And this was a big controversy at the one-year anniversary of the Switch as well. Remember, some people lost their saved games or got put back to square one. So now you've got the opportunity to put your save states in the cloud. That frees up space for more games because, you know, eventually you've got to delete everything for one game to be able to install another and stuff like that. And it's a pain, right? So now this gives you more room for more things, more save states, more games, more indie games that you can get, stuff like that. So I think that that alone should make you happy. And the fact that at least you are getting some NES titles, and they're not scrub titles, but you know Nintendo still wants to sell their SNES classics and the NES classic once they bring that back. I mean, I went out and got an SNES classic. I was lucky enough to get one. And I already still, and I still have my original SNES and it still works yet. I still bought this because I wanted to have some of these games digitally. So, and now I didn't have all the games, but some of them I had. So I just wanted it, and that's what Nintendo's banking on. Just like Disney knows that every time there's a new format, when you go from VHS to DVD, from DVD to Blu-ray to 4K, you're going to rebuy the stuff because you love it and you have to have it. And that's what Nintendo's banking on right now. And that's not to say they will, say they will never have a virtual console, but, I mean, let's face it, it doesn't look like they're going to have to go that route. How about a little trailer talk now? Because there's been a lot of chatter about the Predator Shane Black trailer that came out. Of course, I believe the movie comes out on September the 14th. You can correct me if I'm wrong there. Tweet the show at Down and Nerdy 757. I'm pretty sure it's September the 14th. And it seems like all the talk has been centered around the fact that it's all the kids' fault, right? Jacob Tremblay, I believe, is the is the kid's name. And it's all his fault, right, for unleashing the hell that is the Predator on the earth, right? Because he opens up that package, you know, he starts playing with the stuff in there, and then all of a sudden, here come the predators, and now they're smarter, they're faster, and all these things. Here's my thing. I want to take a different perspective on this. I'm not saying the kid doesn't have any blame. I'm not saying that at all. What I am going to say is, who the hell ships something like that in a generic box through the U.S. Postal Service or UPS or something, make it look like it's some sort of Amazon package, you know, with a printed label on it. Who does that? You don't just ship stuff like that, that that's dangerous to somebody's house. And it was clearly somebody's house. It's not like he snuck into somebody's office and did this right. This came to someone's house. Now, should the kid be touching something that's not his? No. Could he have broken the law by opening something that is that is not addressed to him? Absolutely. But let's just let's also put a little bit of the blame on the person that shipped the damn thing to the house in the first place. I mean, come on. They have to have some sort of blame in this. So it's not all on the kid. The kid shouldn't have touched it. Agreed. But you also can't send something that sensitive, that delicate, and they can unleash a horror that is the predators on the earth and just, you know, drop it in your local at your local post office and expect Mr. Postman to deliver it. I'm sorry, we have to at least give some blame there. Now, as far as the trailer goes, we don't really get a whole lot other than they're smarter, they're faster, and this is a bad thing, right? And then you've got these assassins that are that are supposed to be a part of the deal, and they're going to be the ones that are going after the Predators. And, I mean, there's really not a whole lot to this first trailer. There's plenty of action, don't get me wrong there. you got spaceships crashing and stuff like that, too. You get to see the Predators doing their thing, and they look good. The Predators look really good, don't get me wrong. It's just this isn't something that really gets me excited to want to run out and see this movie. I know if you're a Predator fan, then absolutely you're probably stoked to see this movie. I'm not a huge Predator fan. I've never been a big fan of the Predator movies. I've certainly seen them, but not a huge fan. So I'm not jumping up and down for this. But if you're a Predator fan, I could see why you would be. Because, I mean, if you're a diehard, this has the things that you're looking for. And I am kind of curious to see how the evolution of the Predator are. Because it would have to be... A little bit more ramped up, right, for today's society. You know, as, as weaponry changes, you know, they have to change and evolve as well. And they say they evolved on every world they've gone to. So what are they bringing to the table now, I guess, is the question. So not really sure exactly how I feel about this so far. I'll wait for another trailer, see if we get a little bit more of the story and, and, and exactly what's going on. But right now, it certainly, certainly looks action-packed. So if you're a Predator fan, you've got to be looking forward to this. Just a quick, quick note before I jump into more nerd news. I wanted to give some congratulations to some renewals that came out. Blindspot going to be coming back. 
for another season, season four. That was a very big surprise for me. I I love the show. I think it's great. I think it's very underrated. I just wasn't sure if it would be brought back, and now that it is, bravo. I, it's funny. Right after I got done recording my spoiler-filled review of Cobra Kai season one, YouTube Red announces that, yep, there is going to be a season two coming in 2019. So we won't even have to wait that long, and I'm stoked for that. Also, Outlander fans will have a fifth and sixth season on Stars season four returning in November. So that's a little bit of renewal scorecard news. Still waiting on the news on Timeless. Hopefully, that is certainly good news. And we probably won't hear about that one for another couple of weeks, but I'm really hoping that that one comes back. Let's head to the MCU now because Disney President Bob Iger told The Hollywood Reporter something very, very interesting in that there is a new Marvel franchise coming after Avengers 4. He actually used the term new franchise. Now, it won't necessarily be the end of the Avengers movies. He did say that, but it will span beyond the current team. He did also say that. Now, if you're looking at the dates, there's nine dates for movies through 2022 with the Avengers 4 coming in 2019. So obviously that will likely kick off another phase. And where do you go from there? That's kind of where we sort of expect Captain America to die, right? I mean, you figure that some of the, you know what's going to be happening with Avengers Infinity War and how that ended. Spoiler alert, even though I gave my review last week, got to be really careful when it comes to Avengers Infinity War, right? You know, everybody that faded away into a cloud of dust. You know, think about it. It just as easily could be reversed. If Thanos can do that with a flip flip of his finger, then it can also be undone the same way with the Infinity Gauntlet, right? So it's not like that's a huge thing right now. But to me, you've certainly got plenty of characters to choose from. If the Disney deal with Fox goes through, then you'll have even more characters to choose from. But it's not like they've really utilized the Nova Corps You can still kind of lean on Guardians and Black Panther, right, because of the success there. You're not just going to ignore that and start an entirely new franchise based on stuff that we haven't already seen before. But there are definitely some characters that haven't been used and have been underutilized. We can't rely on the Thunderbolts as well. They could always do something with that a little bit later on down the line. And Avengers Assemble, think of all the different Avengers iterations that there have been in Marvel Comics. So the sky's the limit there. Here's the deal for me. The success of the Captain Marvel movie is going to greatly affect this decision and how it goes. Now, I have no problem just assuming that that movie is going to be a success. And certainly from all accounts that have been from from people that have seen what's been going on on set, it looks like things are going well. Really too early to tell before we see a trailer. Then at least it seems like things are going in the right direction. But if this movie does not succeed like Marvel wants it to then that might change the plans entirely and we might see the original Avengers Avengers cast kind of stick to it a little bit more. But I mean, I think it's reasonable to think that it's going to be very, very successful. Captain Marvel maybe takes the mantle as the leader of the team and the leader of the MCU going forward. I think that's what Marvel would like to do, speculation on my part. I really think that that's an avenue that they'd like to go. And despite Peter Parker not feeling good and disappearing, I still think that once he comes back, and you know he will, that Spider-Man is going to be a big part of the MCU's fans going forward. I know this whole loner stuff is still out there with Sony. It just feels like Spider-Man's home now, and we don't really need to worry about that anymore. So it's a good way to push Spidey aside for a little bit. But I think that we're going to have a a big Spider-Man influence in whatever is going to be coming after 2019. And some of these movies have already been announced anyway. So it's not like it's any surprise that some of these characters are going to be coming back. So, I mean, if you've got a character that you think might be a part of this, tweet the show at DownerNerdy757. Or if you're listening on SoundCloud, leave a comment. Love to hear what you think. Here's something that I legitimately got super, super excited for. Once I saw this news, Batman, the animated series is getting a tabletop game from IDW games. It's going to be called Gotham under siege. It's going to be released in August of 2018. I could not be more excited. I think that, you know, Batman, the animated series is sacred ground for, for nerds like myself. I am sure that you love it as well. Whether you grew up in that era or not, I did. It's going to be designed by, Richard Lanuis, 
who did Elder Signs and the Planet of the Apes games, and also co-designed by Michael Giagliano. So there's going to be new artwork, there's going to be new character miniatures, there's even 3D buildings. I mean, what's not to love about this? I'm not even sure I care how the game is played. It just aesthetically alone, this just has me excited. And, and you, they tease some of the artwork. You see Joker is kind of teased there. Looks like we'll see Robin, Commissioner Gordon, Montoya. We're also going to see Batgirl, Catwoman, of course, along with the world's greatest detective himself. Now, they've said that there's going to be very familiar scenes and scenarios, the stuff that you love in Batman the Animated Series. But here's what I hope. I hope this is largely original story based because it's not like there aren't any new stories that you can tell. And there's certainly a, a huge gallery of villains that you can choose from. So these are, and they've already teased that there's, there are going to be multiple games. This is not a one-off. This is one of those times where you can just assume that this is going to be a success and fans are going to want more. I already want more and I haven't even played the damn thing yet. So I, I think having multiple games is the smart thing to do. And, and you know, there are going to be fans that will buy these for the figurines alone. You think I'm crazy. There are fans that will absolutely buy this for the figurines and the set pieces, no question about it. And this is something that, you know, even if you don't have a Batman fan, tabletop gaming is starting to make a huge, huge comeback. And, of course, we had John Gilmore talking about the Atari tabletop games that came out from IDW games as well. And it seems like quietly IDW is building quite a catalog of games. And this one is a huge, huge get as far as I'm concerned. I can't wait. Hopefully San Diego Comic-Con 2018 while we're there, get a chance to preview this game a little bit and find out what's going on there. And I know I can't wait to play it. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to dive into Valiant's biggest arc of the year, Harbinger Wars 2 with writer Matt Kent. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. May the 30th is the big day that we've been waiting for. Harbinger Wars 2 is finally happening, and this guy hasn't been on the show since February of 2017. We had to bring him back. It's Matt Kent. Matt, how's it going? Hey, pretty good. How are you? Do really good, man. Now, Valiant has had a very, very good track record of making these major story arcs kind of work out so well. So given the success of the first Harbinger Wars, and I and I think I've read somewhere that you're not really a fan of crossover events in general, how did you want to approach this story and make it different? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like I want to approach it like, um, like I would any story and just make it uh, something that works on its own as a, as a great story. So if you, don't, if you haven't read anything before, and you don't read anything again, you're at least going to sit down with this and read a story that uh, is hopefully good, entertaining, you know, it makes you think a little bit, um, has a good ending. <laughs> and um, So I think that's where you start. And then it being an event means that, to me, it just means uh, if you've read the other books, if you've read everything up to this, if you've read the first Harbinger Wars, um, and you're reading other books as they come out during this event, you know, it, it's just going to add layers of meaning um, and add add a little extra to it, you know. But it, but uh, but it's not a to me. It's 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 not a marketing gimmick. I'm not going to write a thing that's any kind of like marketing gimmick. Just right. some more of some other books. I just won't write it, you know. Uh, and that's the thing. I think that um, I've gone on record as not liking. You know, it's like I, I don't want to do crossover just a crossover because this character is popular and this is some more books. Um, I think that's probably the least interesting way to start a story or come up with a story idea. Um, and that's the beauty of working with Valiant has always been, uh, story driven, you know, it's like, and, and I think every year, um, there's been some kind of event, but it's not, it, it's never been a thing where like, Oh, what's our event going to be this year? It's always been a thing like, Oh, this is like, it's been a natural progression right. from stuff that's been happening in the books all year. Um, and then it's like, Oh, well, this, this is naturally, this is the thing that's going to be a bigger event and, and let's give it some more space and make it the thing we do um, in the summer. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the key to making these things work. You know, it's like, it's, it's a, uh, it's going to be something that's just a good story. I, I, I totally agree. Now I read a ton of Valiant, but for anyone who just has kind of seen this and been really interested, or maybe there's just a fan of yours that wants to jump in here. Do you have anything that you could suggest for fans that they maybe need to read before they dive into Harbinger Wars 2? Or do you feel like there really isn't necessarily like a required reading before this? Honestly, I don't think you need to necessarily. There's a, there's like a, like a prologue issue. 
uh, that sort of sets up the events that are happening in this. And I'm not sure how that, if that's, Mel, this is a good thing you're on the phone. I'm not sure if that's available digital or uh, or if, if you can get the issues. But if you could read that, find that and read that, that's like a good way to, to set up this series. In, um, but other than that, I think you could read Harbinger Wars, the first one. Go back and pick it up. It's a good read on its own. Oh, yeah. You know, and if anything, it'll be a nice contrast to what this book is because it's it's a sequel in name, but it's it's got a completely different feel to it, I think. Uh, and so I, I, I would... I would recommend reading it. I don't think you need to. I think it's just it'll it'll just make it richer. You know, it'll if you if you're new to the universe, um, there's a lot of new characters in here that will be new to you. Um, so getting a little bit of backstory, uh, I think, helps, um, but it's not critical. The cherry on top of the Sunday, as it were. Yeah, exactly. Sort of like that. Yeah. Now, to, if I'm I not... if I can inter- if I can interject, sorry, I don't mean to take over the interview. <laughs> yeah, but I want to Mel Kalo, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'll, I'll be back. <laughs> I'm go get a drink. <laughs> but the uh, the Harbinger Wars Compendium, which collects the first uh, series plus uh, some additional issues, comes out next Wednesday, both in print and in digital. So, uh, just in time for um, Harbinger Wars Two Number One um, uh, by the end of the month. I feel like this is like, you know how they have the editor's notes in some books that tells you, oh, if you mm-hmm. missed this issue, go back. And I feel like we just had that moment right here on the show. I love that. <laughs> no, it's perfect. A little, that little yellow caption at the bottom. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's good stuff. Love it. I promise not to interrupt anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, this is great. No, I'm going to call you, Mel. you again. <laughs> <laughs> now, Matt, now to me, if there's one constant in the life of the Psyots, it seems like they've always been constantly hunted it seems like so would you kind of agree with that and does that kind of play a role in how things have gotten to this point between the harbingers and the government themselves yeah i mean i think that's the the sort of the polarizing event that kicks off this war is that um they've been sort of hunted and and downtrodden and and abused or and uh like pushed to the fringe and i think that they got pushed to the point uh where uh, they're they, it's unacceptable. You know, I think something happens to a couple of the psyots that really makes uh, one of the characters live wire. It just it uh, makes her flip out, and she does something crazy. You know, and it, it's not spoiling too much because the whole the series starts with this event uh, with her basically dropping all these satellites, American satellites, from the sky and turning off the electricity on the whole country, um, and that's uh, and that's how a war starts. <laughs> uh, but I think that's. Yeah, I think um, at, at the heart of the series, it's really about this group of kids that are sort of on the fringes, and they're they're feared, and some of, and they're uh, some people accept them, and, but a lot of people don't, and and most people are afraid of them, and I think that's that's the issue here is like how do how do we deal with that, you know, like how do the characters deal with it, how does the nation deal with it, um, and how are we going to treat these these kids, and that's kind of what the whole series is about. Now, in the beginning of this series, it seems like it's kind of somewhat of a crossroads for Livewire. It's funny that you mention her because kind of kind of talk about the struggle that she's going to be facing to not only protect the secret weapons, but to also kind of find herself an adversary to maybe some of her former friends. Yeah, I mean, I think what she does to the government and she basically commits an act of war, you know, an act of terror uh, against the United States. And so I think that it's it it uh, puts a big crack right down the middle of the universe. You know, you're going to have XO maybe on one side, Ninjak on another, Bloodshot somewhere in the middle, um, and then everybody's having to sort of pick a side, you know, based on their own personal beliefs and uh, w- w- what they think is right. And I think what she did is definitely, it's a hard thing to, um, I, I, you're going to understand why she did it. I also think it's a hard thing to justify just because of the ramifications of, of that and, a potential loss of like innocent human life. Um, it's, it's a big deal, you know, and it's and Livewire to me has always been a hero and her doing this. Uh, I still feel like she's a hero, but I feel like she's going to be, I, I feel like there's a, I don't know. I don't know that she went too far. I think that there's unintended consequences that she's going to have to deal with, you know, with innocent people and electricity going out and, and that kind of thing that she maybe didn't think that far ahead. I think she sort of, lost her temper and did something yeah, i would say and so now, yeah and then and then and you don't blame her you know you're you're i don't blame her for doing it you know and then but i think everybody has that in them you know where something just pushes you over the edge and maybe oh, yeah. it, 
and maybe you just do something without thinking it through all the way because you are so angry, you know, and there's something mm-hmm. so unjust that you see happen that you react in this way. And then, and then that's the thing is like, do you, are you, are you reacting or are you overreacting right. or are you, did you go too far? And I think those are all issues that we're going to kind of deal with, with the series. Now, speaking of another series, you've been amazing in, in its Exo Man of War, and we know that Eric has returned to Earth and will be getting involved in this conflict as well. So with all that he's been through recently in the, in the amazing arc that you've been writing, how is, how is he going to feel about joining this battle and the sides that are involved? Yeah, he, he basically came back to Earth at the worst possible time. <laughs> you know, I think he, he finally came back, uh, and then he's dropped right in the middle of this, which is is uh, not the best timing for him. But it's it's the best timing for people that want him on their side. So, yeah, I think he's he's been... Uh, like, if you've read X over the last year, he has gone through all this already. Like, he, he's been through so much, and he's tried to get away from war, and then he got re-enlisted, and then he, they drug him into this battle that he didn't want to fight in. And then, you know, he sort of worked his way up through the ranks and then became, you know, soldier, general, emperor. Um, and then... And then sort of left the planet, left that. Um, and so to come back to Earth and sort of see the same thing coming happening again, where he's getting, they're trying to draw him back into another war, you know, and he's becoming a general. And then it, I think uh, I think he's a different character now than when he left Earth. And so him uh, being involved in this, he's reacting now in a different way than he would have reacted before he left. You know, like the Exo you knew before. You know, in, in Rob's first run, those first 50 issues, he's a different person now just because of all the stuff that's happened in the last year. Um, and I think you're going to, I think he's, he's going to take a side that uh, you kind of predict he might take, but he's going to do, but he's not going to play it exactly how he, he might have used to. I'm just trying to be vague. I don't want to. No, I don't want to blow it because absolutely three being and four vague. Go, no, please yeah. <laughs> be vague because I know that nobody yeah. wants to spoil it for them. I've I've read it already, but our listeners have not. I don't want to have anything spoiled for them for sure. We're talking yeah. to writer Matt Kent, of course, is going to be the man in front of Harbinger Wars 2, number one, which is going to be coming out on May the 30th. Now, Matt, ever since the events of Secret Weapons, the kids have kind of proven that they're capable, but still feel, things still feel very, very raw. So would you say that they have to grow up very quickly during this series? And what is your perception of them right now? Yeah, you know, I think uh, they're kids. So they're, you know what I mean? They have the experience that they that you can get in like, you know, the 15, 16 years that you're alive, you know, and they're going to react that way. And they're going to, and I think you can, you can try to grow up quick, but I, I also think that I, you know what I, uh, without getting t- too political, I was, uh, I was super inspired by the kids after the, the last shooting, you know, and then they came out and spoke and, and everybody's sort of like equivocating and trying to, you know, what do we do about guns and this and that? And then the kids came out, you know, as kind of these, leaders you know these young leaders and they they took a lot of heat for it and they uh um they've been criticized and they've been held up as like good examples and i think that i think that's what is kind of kind of interesting you know it's kind of exciting to see that um young kids having views viewpoints on relevant topics you know and speaking out about it i think there's a lot of parallels between that and what these kids are doing in this series you know and kind of accidentally it's not like i planned it i can't plan what happens in the real world. Right. Uh, but I think writing these kids, you kind of, I, I want them to be as, I want them to be kids. You know, I want them to be 16 years old and have a viewpoint that a 16 year old would have, you know, and be, you know, with the experience they've had and the, and that, and what they've seen. Um, and then, and sort of have it be informed by, by what kids are really like. And I think that's, that's going to be the key. To them, and that's kind of the key to the psyots, and I think that's what makes these kids different than uh, other characters in the book, but then also other characters in other universes and other, you know what I mean? We, you've seen the mutants, and, and you've seen other companies do handle that kind of thing, okay. and I think what makes the Valiant universes great and different is that they were, it's it's our world, but just sort of turned 10, 10 degrees, you know, so it's a little, it's a little bit amped up, it's a slightly different, but it's still set in the real world and so i want i really want to write these kids as real kids reacting how um teenagers would react you know it's uh, there's not going to be i don't know but it's going to be real let's <laughs> put it that way real is good and you talked earlier yeah. about and i want to touch on this again about how valiant is such is so story driven 
and things just seem to matter more in the Valiant universe when they're done. Now we've and now we know there's going to be major consequences to this arc. It's kind of been built that way, and we've already seen some major deaths and stories leading up to this, like Harbinger and Renegades, for example. So I know you can't spoil anything. We certainly don't want you to. So let me talk. Let me ask it this way. Talk about the process that kind of goes into killing off a character and what is the key to making it have a lasting impact? I think as a writer who uh, loves killing characters, I don't, I also don't think that uh, stories need, I I don't think you need it to happen for the story to feel important. Right. And I don't think, I don't think uh, on the flip side, I don't think a character dying makes it important. I think that if a character's die, it needs to be, it needs to make sense in the story and you need to care about it and you need to feel it. Um, but I don't think just automatically having a character die, all of a sudden it becomes important, you know. And I think honestly, I think there's there's uh, characters that don't die in this. There's a character that doesn't die in this, uh, who has something bad happen to him that's that's in a lot of ways is worse <laughs> than dying. Like, you know, I think there's, um, I think you're gonna feel you're gonna feel some t- true emotions uh, for a character that uh, uh, that doesn't die that that's the the equivalent of of losing somebody you know or losing a character a character yeah i'm trying i'm trying to dance around it so i don't spoil anything i don't even want to tell you who it is but i'll say (laughs) your your tap dancing skills matt are are on par you might need to take that show on the road (laughs) i don't know um yeah but no there's a character that doesn't die in this that is never going to be the same after this and i had a long conversation with the editors i'm like well this is when this happens it's not going to, this character will not be the same. Like there's no coming back from it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's as permanent as dying without dying. Um, and so I think that's, that's really what's going to, the, to me, make the series matter. Well, let's, let's give you a break from the tap dancing for a little bit, because yeah, okay. every time I talk <laughs> about a valiant book, I feel like the art is always consistently amazing. So talk a little bit about the incredible work done by Tomas Giorello and why he was such a great choice for this book. Uh, he's so good. We we had such a great time on EXO, and he that the first arc of EXO that he drew um, was the first time I'd worked with him, and I'd never seen really his art before, and uh, it was just so amazing. So when I found out he was going to be available to do this, I was super excited. And then and then knowing who the artist is, I always try to write to the artist, you know, and I know the kind of stuff he likes to draw and the different things um, he's really good at. Just having worked with him on EXO, so. As much as I could, you know, it, kind of the story being sort of plotted out already. I, I'm trying to tailor it to the stuff he likes to draw. Um, so issue one, issue one, not so much because it's kind of a lot of setup. I have to get all the characters uh, introduced and in, in the spots they need to be. So there's not as much super cool stuff for him to draw on that one. But issue two it is uh, I wrote something for him to draw that I, I just can't wait <laughs> to see the art on. It's something with Bloodshot. And something he does that we haven't seen Bloodshot do before, and and then I, I can only imagine how he's going to draw it because it's, it's the craziest scene I've written, probably for Valiant, and uh, and when I wrote it, even in the script, I was like, hey, is this okay if we do this with Bloodshot? I, we haven't seen this before, and uh, yeah, and then they're like, yeah, okay. Wow, <laughs> so I like that. I, I'm I'm only going to see that. Yeah, you're going to see Bloodshot do something and see him in a different in a way we haven't seen him do things. Uh, it's just going to be nuts, and then he's T- Tomas is going to knock it out of the park, I'm sure. That's amazing. Now, here's a name that always seems to come up anytime you talk about Harbingers, and that's Toyo Harada. It's a name that just never seems to go away anytime you're talking about these stories. So, given everything that's going on now, do you feel like the effects of his past transgressions kind of planted the seeds of distrust that sort of set things into motion to where we are right now in Harbinger Wars 2, or might we see him in a different light? At some point, yeah, no, I, it's funny because uh, he's not really in the series, but he, he's all over it at the same time. And I think um, he's sort of the big unseen uh, presence in the book, especially for Livewire, because she sort of used to be his protege, you know. And so I think she rebelled against him. She didn't like the things he was doing, and now, you know, as I was writing this, I'm like, well, she's and she's like unconsciously following the same path that he did, you know, trying to do these big sweeping uh, actions to change things and make things right, you know, how she sees things should be and trying to make them that way. Um, but she's also making the same mistakes as him. And so it's it's super sad for me to write that because I love Livewire. Mm-hmm. But I also think uh, the things she's doing, it's sending her down a path that I don't know 
I don't think she's realized that she's uh, going down yet. And before it might be too late <laughs> by the time we get to the, the end, she might realize too late that uh, she's kind of following this, the same steps as Arata um, and not in the good way. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you mean, having read issue one. And if you guys aren't like super jacked up for issue one by now, I mean, you need to check your pulse because Harbinger Wars 2 is going to be coming on May the 30th at your local comic book shop and digital retailers. It is insane. I could tell you that right now. And we've got this guy here, Matt Kinn. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. I like what you've uh, done with the place. So great to have Matt Kent back on the show to talk about Harbinger Wars 2 that's going to be coming out May the 30th. Issue 1 drops that day. And let me tell you, I've had a chance to look at the issue a little bit early. You want to talk about intense and uncomfortable, the interactions from some of the characters that you love. You know, they used to fight side by side, now not so much anymore. And I think you might be surprised at who's on whose side in certain instances and how everything that's going on is being dealt with and the and the aftermath of what happened in the prelude and Matt touched on it earlier about how Livewire knocks the power out in the United States and that could be considered an act of terrorism and how that's approached is very interesting and it is just wall to wall just intensity and action I loved every second of what I read in Harbinger Wars 2 number 1 I definitely think it lives up to the hype, and hopefully you think so as well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Mattkin and Mel Kalo, who is the marketing director for Valiant, for stopping by and telling us all about Harbinger Wars 2. Can't wait for the rest of that. Also, if you want to find out what happened in our last time, the last time we talked to Mattkin, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find that past interview there. You can also find out a lot more about this week's show And, of course, keep up with us on social media for everything Tidewater Comic Con 2018 as well. We're going to be there doing our normal con coverage. So follow us at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.